If you're new with us, we are doing a brief study on the church, looking at our privileges and responsibilities as members of the household of faith. And uh, we are in uh, week seven of eight in that series, as today we look at uh, the important role of, of welcoming people into our assembly. So if you're new, welcome. Uh, we want to welcome you well. And so we're going to learn how to, how to do that better today, and even more so, ponder afresh the grace of God in Jesus Christ who has welcomed us. Uh, and so let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help briefly. Lord Jesus, we're grateful today that there is more mercy in you than sin in us. And that's a lot of mercy because there's a lot of sin in us. And we are grateful to be able to study your word today and we pray be merciful to us, sinners. Make us more like yourself. Captivate us with your glory that we may not be captivated by false glories in this world. Come today and open our minds to this text, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of the best sermon illustrations, teaching illustrations, involve familiar things and frequented things. Jesus was the master teacher, the master illustrator, and he used very simple, relatable illustrations like farming and sowing and salt, light, vineyards, etc., and James is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, and he also loves homely, down-to-earth illustrations. He speaks a lot in metaphorical terms with horses, and springs of water, fire, farming, mist, travel, giving birth, a mirror, things that normal people can relate to. And here he uses an example of a public worship service. And it is the kind of thing that any church attender can relate to. Two strangers come in and try to find a seat. One stranger looks wealthy, and he is warmly ushered to his seat, given first-class treatment, while the other, the poor man, has to stand or at best is told to sit on a stool. And James uses this illustration to highlight the sin of partiality in the church. He doesn't talk in just abstract terms, but he gives us a real-life example so that we can understand what he's talking about. He may have a real story in mind, or this may simply be a hypothetical situation, uh, a situation that he knows happens all uh, far too often. Now, we're not looking entirely at the book of James. We've done that before here at IDC, but this is a continuation of the thought that he left off with in James 1.27. A familiar text to us as uh, this verse speaks about the need for compassionate care toward widows and orphans. And it's also uh, followed up by a text that has a similar theme as James talks about in chapter 2 verses 14 to 26, faith without works being dead. And one of the ways in which we uh, display compassion is by warmly welcoming people and taking care of people who are in need. And James says, if you say you have faith, but you do not care for those who are in need, uh, that faith is useless. And so sandwiched right in between these two is, is a call to God's people to put on display real faith by showing real compassion, by showing real neighbor love. And to be a welcoming church that reflects the gospel, we have to deal with the poison of partiality and prejudice and apply the grace of God to our hearts so that we can welcome everyone as Jesus has welcomed us. James pulls no punches in his letter. It is a two-by-four to the head throughout. And here he calls partiality, evil thoughts, dishonor, 
committing sin and transgression. But he also applies the grace of God to our hearts so that we can walk in a way that pleases God. Perhaps one of the most important verses on welcoming is Romans 15, verse 7. After spending a good amount of time in Romans 14, the beginning of 15, on Jews and Gentiles being together and how they have these different cultural preferences and there's disunity because of their backgrounds, he concludes a very theologically dense letter with this very important exhortation. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Here's how Pastor Ray Ortland, who, Lord willing, will be preaching for us in a couple of weeks, said it at his church recently, leaning over the pulpit with his sincere, careful, gracious tone. He said, welcome to church. Now, here's the one thing I invite you to understand. You may have noticed when you walked in that the doors out there are painted red. That is an old Christian tradition reflecting how we enter the church through the blood of Christ. As a side note, some of you know I want red doors out there at some point uh, in, in our church. Uh, so get to working on that. Uh, he says here, uh, out in the world where we live the rest of the week, we never measure up. Our lives are never complete. We, are never, we never fully belong. Then when we come into the church through the finished work of Christ on the cross, and what makes the difference here? The reason why we belong, we're walking into completeness already prepared. Therefore, we can be weak. We can be honest with ourselves, with one another, and with the Lord. And he says, we belong. Welcome. So to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, this church opens wide her red doors in Jesus' name. The friend of sinners, so welcome. We're glad you're here. It's probably the best welcome I've ever heard in my life. And it is a beautiful example of Romans 15, verse 7. And I love it because we, we need not to just preach the gospel. We need to display a relational warmth that embodies the gospel. It's not wave at each other as Christ waved to you. <laughs> it's not just say hey to each other as Jesus said hey to you. Jesus welcomed us. He came to us. He, he opened up to us. He showed grace to us. That's what it means to welcome. And so the big idea this morning is that genuine faith, that's the focus of James's book, genuine faith, leads to practical deeds of love and not loveless acts of favoritism. And so let's look at it in three parts. There's an exhortation in verse 1, the main exhortation, his main point. There is an illustration, as I've mentioned, in verses 2 to 4, and then thirdly, there are explanations of why we should not show partiality, four reasons why we should not. So the exhortation. James begins in a very familial uh, tone when he says, my brothers. And this is James's uh, typical way of setting up something hard to hear. All right. <laughs> my brothers and sisters, he, he, he's, he's calling in the family as it were. And he says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Faith in Christ and favoritism or partiality, whatever, whichever term you prefer, faith in Christ and favoritism are completely incompatible. They don't mix. Social snobbery and faith in Christ are incompatible. So he says, show none of it. Now, this is a fascinating word he uses here for favoritism. It's fascinating because it looks like the early Christians invented it. They invented several words 
they didn't have a Greek word for this word, and it, it means essentially to receive the face. Don't receive the face of one, meaning don't discriminate on the basis of external appearances. Don't judge simply by outward appearances. The term is also plural, meaning that we should not show any kinds of favoritism. And we are tempted to show favoritism in many ways. Here are seven ways in which one may be tempted. They all begin with A, seven A's of favoritism. First, <laughs> appearance, physical appearance. That is race or ethnicity or dress or one's looks. Another A is accent. I mean, that's why they were surprised that the disciples were doing stuff because they were from Galilee after all. And they were, quote, the, the rednecks who had distinct accents. It was like Uncle Sive was listening to people in other languages interpreting them. It's like, how could that happen? And we, we tend to think that certain people with certain accents uh, have certain level of education or that kind of thing. Age is another one. We often discriminate based upon youth or, or old age. As Paul had to tell Timothy, don't let them look down upon you because you are young. Now, instead, we are to treat one another as family, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 5. Older women like mothers, older men like fathers, and so on. People are tempted to discriminate based upon affluence. That's this text. Ancestry, that is one's name or class. Class distinction, class partiality is a big deal in various places in the world. My friends in the UK talk about it as, as the issue, uh, as opposed to race. It's, a, it's class or affinity. So what you're into so we tend to discriminate if a person is a hipster and from Portlandia or they're gangsters or they're country western or they're techies or athletes or artists, then we, we, we can very easily fall prey to partiality uh, regarding affinity. Or finally, achievement. That is what you've achieved in your education or your vocation or your popularity. And these things are not most important to God. You remember when uh, the call was made to the prophet to go find Israel's next king, and here comes little David. And we read in that text that God looks on the heart. You can be beautiful and powerful externally, but be a disaster spiritually. And you can be scruffy and frail, but be a spiritual giant. And this sin, and it is a sin, James is very clear that he calls this a sin. This is one of those hidden sins, right? Some sins are more visible. Public drunkenness, profanity. But other sins are more hidden, resentment, bitterness, envy. And people usually have to confess those sins to you for you to know about them. And partiality, while it can be seen observably by examples, like James gives us one, often it is harbored in the heart of a person. But it is totally out of step with the heart of God. Being condescending toward any image bearer of God, regardless, uh, or, or be condescending toward any image bearer of God, uh, based upon their, their social standing or background, is completely inconsistent with the scriptures. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Leviticus 19. You shall not be partial to the poor. Or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. And what God's people are called to do is to reflect God's own character. Right? The gospel obliterates these worldly assessments 
of any feelings of superiority of a particular group. So how is it that we get beyond fawning over the rich and the powerful? Because the whole world does it. Look at the magazines. Look at the headlines. Notice what James says. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he could stop there, but he adds this phrase, the Lord of glory. Only Christ has all the glory. In Jesus Christ, we behold glory. Don't idolize the affluent, the attractive, or the leaders. Worship Jesus Christ. Be in awe of him, the glorious one. It's in him that we see real glory. It's not in the rich. It's not in the powerful. It's not in the popular. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are bombarded by the media all the time of look at the athletes, look at the movie stars, look at the politicians. Then we go to the Bible and it says, look to Jesus Christ. Get your eyes on him. Because if you're captivated by the glory of Jesus Christ, you will not be carried away by external appearances. You'll be carried away by something that is worth being carried away by, the Lord of glory. And so we see in this exhortation, show no partiality. It's inconsistent with faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, there is this illustration. As James shows us a picture of what this might look like, of snubbing the poor in a corporate gathering. The situation involves an assembly. That's the word in verse 2. It's that word where we get the word synagogue from. James here is meaning a, most likely a typical worship gathering of a Christian community. And the guest walks in, verse 2, uh, one with a, wearing a gold ring and fine clothing. And he comes into the assembly and the other is a poor man in shabby clothing. And so one guest looks like Tom Brady, you might imagine. Imagine if Tom Brady walked in here. Maybe he's here. I don't know. I can't really see very well. Uh, but, hey, Tom, I'm glad you're here if you're here. But he's got all the rings on, you know, all the Super Bowl rings. And uh, everybody's, you know, going wild over him. Meanwhile, this poor chap walks in with shabby clothing, and they say, you can, you can sit on the floor. And this kind of thing is, is somewhat ingrained in us, isn't it? In our own sinful nature, our impulse is to give preferential treatment to the mighty, and especially those who might benefit us. Sometimes you see it not in the seats, really. Mattered and so on. But what you see more in churches today is how people with the money have the power in churches and kind of run the show. But when money is given that kind of pride of place, the glory of Jesus will soon depart. The fact here that the poor have to be told where to sit seems to indicate that they're visitors. This is not how you treat a visitor. <laughs> hey, God, we're glad you're here. You can sit on the floor. I'm reminded of the story of uh, Gandhi in his autobiography. During his student days, he read the Gospels and uh, seriously considered being a Christian. And he believed that in the teachings of Jesus, he could find the solution to the caste system, which was dividing the people of India. So one Sunday, he decided to attend the service at a nearby church and talk to the minister about the Christian faith. But when he entered the sanctuary, the usher refused to give him a seat and suggested, quote, he go worship with his own people. Gandhi left the church, never returned, and wrote, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. And James says in verse 4, this is evil. This is evil. And James just comes out throwing punches, doesn't he? Now, a word or two of clarification about what James is not saying. He's not giving fashion advice. Right? He's not saying uh, that you, you cannot dress up or wear your jewelry or that you should always dress down. Nor is he saying that we should 
shun the rich and ignore them. He's not saying, no, the wealthy are not welcomed. There are many wealthy Christians in the Bible. In fact, one of them was Lydia, whose home became the, the, basically the gathering place for the church in Philippi. She actually practiced welcoming, and she was wealthy. So we can fall into the opposite trap of discriminating against the rich. No, we should warmly welcome the rich as well, graciously and gladly because they matter to God. And James is not saying by welcoming everyone, this is what the culture believes, I think, by, or increasingly, that we should now water down the message so that we don't defend, uh, offend anyone. James's letter disproves this itself. James believes you can welcome everyone and also confront everyone. All are welcome to be confronted by God's word. And so being welcoming doesn't mean that we no longer teach historic Christianity or that we don't teach the Bible. No, no, we're all welcomed and we all need God's word. We all need the gospel. Nor does James mean here that we should not give honor to whom honor is due. If a high-ranking individual does come to our church, and they do from time to time, it is right and good to, to, to honor them. If someone does something well in our church, uh, we should congratulate them for their accomplishment. The point of the illustration is that showing partiality in the assembly is evil. <clears throat> and there are many examples of doing this throughout uh, church history as the wealthy were giving certain place and giving, giving certain seats. Um, in fact, one of my historical heroes, Charles Simeon, preached in the, uh, in the 1800s uh, when he was in uh, Cambridge at Holy Trinity Church. That was, you know, the context, you've seen this before, where entire families have a whole uh, block of pews. And because they did not like their preacher, they locked their pews so no one could sit in the pews and listen to Simeon preach. That was a great congregation he, he had, man. Um, but I've seen this, this non-welcoming spirit in, in other ways as well. Back when I was a, a youth evangelist preaching uh, at these Disciple Nows and different uh, youth events uh, 10, 15 years ago now. Oh, gosh, it was longer than that. Um, I, I remember preaching on a Saturday, and this uh, young girl came to faith in Christ. And on Sunday was her first time to ever be at a Sunday morning worship service. And she was asked to, to move out of the seat of this, this couple in the church because she was in their seat. <laughs> well, I have a lot to say about that, but we, we recoil at, at this kind of, of treatment to people. But what kind of attitude, we must ask ourselves, do you have toward those of a different background? Is your instinct sit by us or let's go sit by them? Or is it, I hope they sit elsewhere? Or let's move somewhere else? Do you joyfully move toward those who are different from you or shuffle away quietly? My friends, that is not the heart of Christ. Christ moves toward us. He moves toward us. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Author Rebecca McLaughlin offers three rules of engagement for Sunday worship. She put this on social media a couple years ago. An alone person in our gathering is an emergency. Friends can wait and introduce a newcomer to someone else. Let's all be missionaries in church today. That's coming to, to the gathering not as a consumer, but as a minister eager to welcome and bless.
That's a welcoming church. That's James's illustration of the assembly. His explanations, why is it that we should not show partiality? He gives four reasons for them. And like a good father, we not only get the, the points, but we get the reasons. We get now this work in our hearts. We get the gospel. And so James says, first of all, partiality does not reflect God's grace. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God, which he has promised to those who love him? He says, favoritism contradicts God's work of grace. God has chosen many of the poor to be rich in faith. And we just read the New Testament. We see so many examples of this. As Paul is, is writing to uh, those in Corinth in the beginning of, of his letter in verse 26, he says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Some were, but not many. Not many were of noble birth. Some were, but not many. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And I love this. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. <laughs> it's like... They're not even there to society. Like the, the movie uh, Tombstone. Uh, oh, Johnny, I apologize. I forgot you were even there, as Doc Holliday said. Uh, well, God does recognize them, even though society does not. God chose many who were poor and weak and lowly. When Jesus started his movement, he did not start with the upper echelon. He did not start with the elite. He did not bank on the, quote, trickle-down effect from the influencers. Look at these disciples. Do you start a movement from Galilee? Look at the first eyewitness of the resurrection, a lady formerly possessed by seven demons. We just want to give Jesus some, some coaching. right? That Jesus, this is not how you start a movement, you know? That is, unless you're the Son of God with infinite wisdom and power, <laughs> whose, whose ways look foolish to the eyes of people, but is working out his saving purposes in ways that confound the human mind. That was certainly true of the early church. The gospel was exploding on the fringes of societies in major cities. In fact, one philosopher, Celsus, in 178, who was an opponent of early Christianity, mockingly wrote this about Christians. Quote, we see them in their own houses, wool dresses, cobblers, the most uneducated and vulgar persons. They are like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nest or frogs holding a symposium around a swamp or worms convening in mud. <laughs> so here we are today in the, in the worm convention, in the frog symposium. Uh, many early Christians, as he observed, were on the margins of the society. And James says, so why are you showing partiality to a bunch of people who are Christians? God has chosen the poor, many of, not all of the poor, but he's chosen many of the poor, many who are not uh, influential. He's shown grace to them. They're rich in faith. And we know this, in the gospel, we are the poor. It's not that the rich are excluded, but the rich must come poor in spirit to be included. You don't come to Christ rich in spirit, nor do you come to Christ middle class in spirit. You only come to Christ poor in spirit, or you don't come at all. And that's why Jesus says it's really hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's not impossible. But it's really hard because the more we have, the less practice we have of being utterly desperate. And we must come poor in spirit. 
The church in James' day had forgotten that they were poor. They had forgotten their own shabbiness in the gospel. It's interesting he uses the same word up in chapter 1, verse 21, when he says, put away all filthiness for this man's clothing in the analogy. You see, Jesus has come and he's clothed us. He's given us grace. The church forgot that they were smelly and poor and scruffy before Jesus cleansed them and, and put his garments of grace on them. It contradicts God's grace. Secondly, partiality does not reflect the kingdom of God. He says he's chosen many to be heirs of the kingdom. And this principle holds, holds throughout the New Testament that in the kingdom, everything is it's like it's turned upside down. Mary sang this in uh, the Magnificat, how God has reversed the, the status of the poor in Christ. And one day, we will see the full truth revealed about the most honorable saints, and there will probably be some big surprises on that day. We might find the poor janitor or the poor farmer or the struggling single mother receiving more honor than the elite or the big-name pastors. You know, it's, it's interesting. Only in the church could you find or should find a poorer person, a person of a lesser class, discipling someone of an upper class. Why? Because we're talking about the kingdom. They could be more mature, be pouring into them. It doesn't reflect the kingdom of God. It shows that we're not operating with the kingdom of God in mind. And I love don't you, how he mentions those who are heirs of the kingdom are those who love him. God is doing this. Well, he says in verse 6, something, something else, you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones dragging you to court? As the Christians were dealing with opposition and persecution, many of their opponents were the wealthy and those with influence. So he says, now why are you showing favoritism uh, to the rich and dishonoring the poor? And you've dishonored, he says in verse 7, the honorable name by which you have been called. Notice this grace again. This You've been called. You've been called to honor Jesus' glorious name. And there are many ways today in which the church can still dishonor the poor. One is here in our text, and that is not welcoming them. But there are other ways. Failing to plant churches in poor areas. That's why we support work like Acts 29 and other organizations that want to plant in hard places. Or you see it as churches relocate out of poor neighborhoods. Or devalue the poor believer's opinion. Or fail to give attention to the poor regarding church programming and scheduling. Or not giving poor believers equal opportunities for training and leadership in the church. Or as I've already mentioned, allowing the rich to control decision making in the church. James says this doesn't reflect the kingdom of God. He's turned it upside down. Thirdly, it doesn't reflect God's royal law, verses 8 to 12. James now gets us to the second commandment when he says, If you really fulfill the royal law of Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. He calls it the royal law. Previously, he says we've been called by an honorable name, and we who have this royal name are to live by the king's royal law. And what is that royal law? It is to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus taught us that these neighbors include strangers as well as our enemies. 
Doug Moo, commentator, says, James is in line with Jesus' teaching as he argues that love for the neighbor, the heart of the royal law, forbids the church from discriminating against any who might enter its doors. He says you're breaking the most basic commandment in the faith with this action. Verse 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And he says, not only that, but it's really the total violation of the law. Verse 10, forever who keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Here we see an important principle as it relates to the law, that the law is united. And to break one part of it means you've you've broken all of it. You aren't loving God and neighbor when you show partiality. And everything, Jesus says, hangs on these two commandments. It's a total violation against God himself. Verse 11, for he, notice the he, he said it, our God. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. The switch to he here reflects that the law has a lawgiver. And we offend the one who has given the law when we break it. Verse 12, he mentions that we we will be held accountable for our words and our deeds. So speak and so act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty. Don't think that snubbing the poor, James says, is a small thing. There are eternal ramifications in view here. Live with the judgment in view. The Lord is taking all of our words and all of our deeds into account. But there's also a freeing part of verse 12 here as he says that we're judged under this law of liberty. Isn't that unique? Now, as a Christian, we know we are accepted in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But this doesn't mean we set the law of God aside. It means we have a new relationship to the law. The law is no longer threatening. It's no longer a confining burden to us. The will of God for a Christian is something that we joyfully pursue in the power of the Spirit. Obedience for the Christian is actually liberating. Sin is enslaving. Obedience is liberating. Interestingly, you know, if you look at James's example, the person to really be pitied in this example is the usher and those who are captivated by the rich. They are enslaved. If they would be practicing real neighbor love, they would experience real liberty. The real slave in the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife is Potiphar's wife. Even though Joseph is physically enslaved, she is a slave to her lust. When you live in obedience, empowered by the gospel, you find real freedom. And we need to remember that. Sin enslaves us. Sin promises us liberty. Sin makes us stupid. Sin only hurts us. What is freeing and fulfilling is obedience. Verse 13, the final thing. He says that partiality does not reflect God's mercy toward us. That is, it doesn't reflect how God has treated us. When he says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over justice. James here has many echoes of the Old Testament, like Zechariah chapter 7, verses 9 to 10. This is what the Lord Almighty says, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the alien or the poor. And James here 
takes Jesus' uh, beatitude and kind of uh, transforms it a bit. When Jesus said in Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. He puts it into its opposite. Cursed are those who are not merciful, for they will not be shown mercy. So he says here, if you remain on this path of showing partiality and favoritism, you will find at the end of your lives a judgment without mercy. And this reflects teachings like in Matthew 25, where Jesus separates real believers from unbelievers. And he there demonstrates for us that those who have lived this life of mercy as reflecting that God's mercy has been shown to them. And so it all comes back to the gospel. We have to really work the gospel into our hearts so that we'll really love people well. We have to really ponder how merciful God has been to us so that we will show mercy to others. We have to really remember how gracious God has been to us so that we'll be people of grace. This is how we not just preach the gospel, but we embody the gospel in how we love and welcome others. So it all comes back to the good news. It's, all, it's about being brought into this family that we bear Christ's honorable name. Who says, and Paul says, he's welcomed us, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. We bear that name and we live to the honor of his name by allowing his grace and mercy to transform the way we think about everyone else. And so as I wrap it up here, let me just encourage you to reflect regularly on the gentle and gracious welcome of Jesus Christ. And allow that grace, allow that gentleness to make you a person that welcomes others warmly and hospitably. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't say in conclusion to this text that we should all search our hearts for any kind of pride or prejudice that we may have. The only thing that you have to lose is the sin. It's the sin that entangles. So let's be rid of it. Let's repent of it and ask God to change us, making us more like Jesus. And let's live in light of Jesus' honorable name in view of the coming, fulfilling kingdom of God. Soon we will be gathered together from people with, from all, I mean, and I mean all sorts of backgrounds, <laughs> and all ethnicities, and all of us will be there not because of our status, not because of our race, not because of our degrees, <laughs> not because of our accents. We will be there and only be there by the grace of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and we will marvel, that day we will marvel at how gracious Jesus has welcomed us. What are we doing in the kingdom of God? He's welcomed us. And I need to work that into my heart every day. And so do you. And let's live this day in light of that day. We're going to see the wonderful welcome of Jesus. <laughs> in a way that we have never, ever been welcomed. And we get to put that on display as a little foretaste of what's ahead of us because of his grace. The one who has welcomed us is worthy of our praises. He's worthy of our lives. And so let's live faithfully in light of his honorable name, in light of his character. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege it is to study your words. As James 
teaches us here so plainly, but also so powerfully, what it looks like to be heirs of the kingdom, what it looks like to be faithful disciples who show mercy as those who have been shown mercy, who show grace as those who have been, who have been shown grace. And we pray that you would grow us in this area, grow us in our neighbor love, grow us in relational warmth and hospitality. May what we believe impact the way we live and the way we treat others. And Lord Jesus, even now, as we prepare our hearts for the table, we are reminded of your welcome. We are reminded of the day in which we'll take the, the bread and the cup anew in the kingdom of God, because you've invited us there. You've come to us. And so prepare our hearts as we prepare to receive now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.